Hello and welcome to Adrian Goldberg's talk show, this time with Nazir Afsal, one of the best known legal voices in the UK. Nazir was the former Chief Crown Prosecutor for North West England. In that role, he reopened the case into allegations of grooming by gangs of men of mainly Pakistani Muslim heritage in Rochdale. And we'll talk about that case specifically in part two of this podcast. For now, though, I want to focus on Nazir's personal story and some of the other high-profile cases he has been involved with. Many of these stories are recounted in his brilliant autobiography, The Prosecutor, which I really can't recommend highly enough. At one level, it is an immigrant success story. It also offers a revealing insight into the legal world, which for many of us, I suspect, is a a puzzle at the best of times. And it also highlights some of the deep cultural misunderstandings and conflicts that often blight our society. Nazir Afsal, welcome along. Great to have you with us. Hello, Adrian. Uh, Nazir, your story starts in your home city of Birmingham and a, a racial, a, a racially motivated attack on you, which leads your dad to say, forget about it, you'll never get justice. Tell us about that attack. Uh, it was one of many, but it was the one I wanted to focus on. I, was, I must have been about 13 years old. Um, I'm walking home from school. I lived in a small heath. And um, it was a nice, it was the sunniest day of the sunniest month of 1976. Those of us who are old enough to remember, that was the the heat wave to end all heat waves. We even had a minister, didn't we? Minister for rain at the, uh, being appointed at that time. It was so hot. Dennis Howell, the old Birmingham MP, it was, if I remember rightly. It was, Dennis Howell, Dennis Howell. And I was walking home, uh, as I would have done any other day, and suddenly I hear, three well a voice uh using uh terminology that i'm not entirely sure i want to share with the world right now but uh i you know literally you can probably imagine the kind of language that was used i look back and they see i see them just chasing me and of course my instinct or survival instinct is to run and i run and before i'm before i can get too far i'm afraid they're on top of me and they use my head as a football thankfully they're not very good at football which is why i live to tell the tale but um, I'm, you know, I'm battered and bruised. I'm saved, if that's the right word, by a taxi driver who um, met, they run away. He manages to take me home. And my father then tends to my wounds. And, you know, his reaction, my father's reaction uh, was obviously of shock, but at the same time, a realization on his part that this is not just the latest attack that we, as or he and other immigrants, were suffering at that time. And, you know, people tend to forget what the 60s and 70s were like. The racism, whilst it exists today, was much more overt in those days. You had skinheads on the street. You had uh, bullies in schools. You, I was born within the shadow of Birmingham City Football Ground, and Saturday afternoon was not a time to be on the streets, unfortunately. You know, hooliganism was uh, was pretty, well, it was all over the place, and, and certainly racist abuse that came with it was very clear. And so it was scary for me, scary for me growing up. But I think what I remember most about that particular incident is my father's reaction. Uh, there was me thinking there's some, you know, I can do something about this. I must be able to report who they are. The taxi driver saw them, etc. cetera. Um, but um, my father said, there's no justice. And his view was that, Nobody was prepared to listen to us as a community, uh, and we had to simply take it on the chin. I think at the back of his mind, Adrian, there was always the f- feeling that at some point they're going to kick us out, 
and that we should just not you know, stir things up and not be troublemakers, even if we were the victims. And that never left me, the idea that somehow there was a, a class of people or a group of people that just would not get justice. And uh, I, when looking back at the process through the, through the process of writing the book, it became clear to me that incidents like that, and there, sadly there were many others, made me realize what it feels like to be a victim and then also made me realize, yes, there is justice and, and I'm going to try and get it for people. Yeah, so just to fill in a bit of the backstory, your dad came to the UK in the late 50s and you were born in the UK in 1962. I think you've said, haven't you, when people tell you to go back where you come from, that place would be Birmingham. But Absolutely. in your story, that those words of your dad, and I, I think it's important to just reflect a little bit on your dad because he was no meek and mild, submissive person. He created a, a community organisation for Pakistani migrants to Birmingham. So he wasn't somebody just willing to, to let the bad guys get away with it. Absolutely right. He, 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 was, he, was, um, uh, he wasn't legally trained at all. He, in fact, I, so I'm, I've never talked to him about it, but I don't think he was properly educated. I don't think he even went to school uh, in Pakistan or in India as it was before the partition. Uh, but he had it in his... DNA that he would help people and being one of the very first immigrants from northern Pakistan in Birmingham he took it upon himself to be a, a voice or a, a, certainly a, an advocate for people who themselves didn't have the ability to touch and, and reach authority. I, I think he had one benefit, one advantage he had was because he had worked as a catering contractor for the British Army in India and Cyprus, he had uh, relatively good English. And that gave him an advantage, which meant that other members of the community that had come over without with those skills uh, were, were reliant upon him. And then, of course, as I got a little bit older, when I was about nine or ten, uh, I became his secretary, in effect. And I write about how, you know, time and time again, I'd come home from school and he'd, he'd give me this pad of paper and, and a pen and say, right, take this down. And uh, what he would be then doing would be writing a letter, or I'd be writing a letter for him, on behalf of somebody who had contacted him with an issue of some kind. And, you know, this is before the internet, so I had no idea who I was writing to. I uh, didn't even know what the big words meant, some of them. Uh, but I would put down those my dad's words as best I could in a letter, put in an envelope, and he would post it. And sometimes it worked. I give an example in the in the book about how somebody was desperate for an operation on his sinuses, was simply not be able to get the operation. Um, I wrote a letter to the head of the hospital. That's the kind of uh, that's the kind of language that I was able to use at that time. And before we knew it, uh, that guy was having his operation. And then what happens is that he then shares that good news with everybody else and suddenly more people keep knocking on my father's door uh, at our door and there are more letters flying out flying out from me so he saw his role as uh, as as i say the advocate for people who perhaps uh, did not have any power and uh, the only power that we had i guess was the ability to put something down on paper Mm. But although he wasn't, as you make quite clear, a submissive person, as well as the racists on the street, there was a real issue within the Pakistani Muslim community in Birmingham at the time. And I'm sure this is true of other minority communities in Birmingham at the time as well. An issue of trust 
with the police. And that was partly mm. the reason why he said, you'll get no justice for this, because somebody with your skin tone in Birmingham was not likely to get a sympathetic hearing from West Midlands police. I, don't, I, don't, I said, we, we can't, I'm not going to just pick on Birmingham. I'm pretty sure that every part of, of the United Kingdom uh, was the same. That if you were, there was a perception, and the perception is people's reality. The perception was that, uh, we were in some way second class or or a lower priority for the police services, which were he- heavily stretched, of course, at that time. There was a lot more crime. I like to p- say that I didn't have neighbours, I had witnesses. <laughs> and um, you know, when you've got so much crime, the police are being very selective about what they deal with. Uh, the things that we now recognise need to be dealt with, like burglary and domestic abuse, etc., were certainly not on their radar back then. And when it came to race hate crime, remember the Race Relations Act only came in in 1977. So uh, for the first 15 years of my life, there wasn't even any laws against it. Uh, And so why would they consider it as an issue for them to address? And that obviously permeated through the community and the view then became, well, we've got to somehow police ourselves or protect ourselves. I mean, they didn't go down the vigilante route, but they certainly... Uh, saw numbers as being quite important and they would you know I think one of the things that people criticize the communities for today is that they all live closely together you know you'll find that in most so in a a Birmingham streets or in a London streets or wherever it may be in a Bradford that members of the family all live either next door or near each other Uh, and that was a deliberate attempt to protect each other uh, and to be eyes and ears for each other. Mm. And at a relatively early age, you got bitten by the bug of the law. You talk about reading To Kill a Mockingbird and the legendary defence lawyer in that book, Atticus Finch. Uh, and you comment that most of the legal heroes that we see both in literature and in films as well tend to be defence lawyers. You went down the route of the prosecutor and you'd had a taste of being a defence lawyer and you didn't really like it. You felt that there were bad people out there who needed to be brought to justice. Uh, you know, whether I, whether I thought that or not, it's how, how I felt was this. Um, I'd done some defence work and I, I mean, I, let me say at the outset, I think what the defence lawyers have a really tough job. They often have to do it work 24-7 with very little money in their back pocket. They, you know, legal aid isn't where it should be. Uh, and they have to deal with people, quite frankly, sometimes who are very, very unreceptive and don't recognize the good that they're doing. But I didn't enjoy it. And I, I, the way I paint the picture, Adrian, is that as a prosecutor, you're building a wall, which is the case. And I, what a defense lawyer has to do is find the gaps in the wall that will bring it down. And what's for me, what was more satisfying was building the wall in the first place rather than looking for uh, cracks in the wall. So that to me was what drove me. And also, I guess, goes back to my experience as a victim. You know, as a victim, I thought, well, who's on the, the side of the victim? Technically, it should be the, the prosecutor and, uh, and the police officer. And I want to play my part in ensuring that people didn't have to suffer as I've done and people around me did. You talked about one particular incident when you were working as a defence lawyer as well, where you felt very uncomfortable about defending a particular individual, and that led you to handing in your resignation. It was. I mean, I was always heading in that direction anyway, but you, I had somebody who had been uh, charged with rape or uh, arrested for rape, uh, and this was 
before we have now we have video interviews of rape victims or alleged victims uh, so it's all t- done on video back then the victim just made a statement a written statement which was taken by an officer and so i have the statement from the um victim alleged victim and i have the, the suspect in front of me and my job is to advise this person about how he should respond to the interview he's about to receive and he took enormous pleasure from reading the statement so much so that i in my head he was reliving it reliving uh, this reliving his rape of of the individual concerned and um and of course he then turned to me and said well you're here to do my bidding i.e i'm meant to do his side to support him which yeah i'm sure it's true uh but it, it was clear in my mind that he was as guilty as sin and more than that he was uh you know enjoying the fact that he had not only raped her but that he would now take her through this process uh, and re-traumatize her again and i couldn't do that i mean as i say the lawyers defense lawyers everybody all of us need representation it's just not for me and i realized actually i would have rather enjoyed building the case against him uh, than trying to knock it down and it was an opportune moment, wasn't it? Because it was around this time that the Crown Prosecution Service was being set up. And until that moment, prosecutions had been the responsibility for the police. There had been numerous mistrials and examples of faked evidence or evidence that was simply not robust enough, which led to some pretty high profile cases falling apart. So the decision was made to take the responsibility for prosecution away from the police, who effectively had shown that they could not be trusted, and given to an independent agency, which was the, the CPS. Yeah, that that was, the, the, I think that was one of the main drivers. It was, it was really exciting. Two things. One, I was I wanted to work in London at some point, and the opportunity presented itself to work for the Crown Prosecution Service, which was in its infancy in London. So I had both the excitement of, of a new organisation with new responsibilities and also the ability to work, as I did, in central London uh, at the busiest court in the land. You know, it's not something that, you know, as a young man, as you know, I was young once, uh, you know, those, those, th- those elements attracted me. And but I didn't care to, to, to the fact that the actually resources weren't there. You know, the government didn't really trust the prosecution service that it, it had itself created. So it wasn't funding it. Uh, so we didn't have enough lawyers or prosecutors. The police hated the prosecution service because the police had now taken their responsibility for prosecuting away from them. And they felt that, hang on a minute, we don't want somebody marking our homework. So there was a trust issue there. Uh, there was a trust issue with victims and survivors who saw, hang on a minute, these people can't handle the hundreds of cases that are being thrown their way. So literally, being a hate figure from every, and defense lawyers didn't like us either, being a hate figure from every sphere somehow was actually attractive to me. Uh, I thought, well, look, we're at the bottom of people's trust in us uh, or appreciation of us. I have an opportunity to make something of myself and contribute to an organization growing and growing fast, I hope. Mm. And I think your work in the CPS, I would suggest reading the book, is characterized by a desire to make the law work for victims. Now, you're quite clear in the book that you understand it is not the job of the CPS to create law, but that it is the job of the CPS to make the law fit the times that we are in. And that particularly applied to your work in an area that you describe as 
gender terrorism. So this is work around coercive control, work around forced marriage and so on that you clearly feel very passionately about. I'm I, again one of my privileges and uh, is that so many victims and survivor groups and there are tens of thousands of them around the country all of them working on a shoestring very often with volunteers certainly with not enough funding to do their job they were sharing their stories with me I again one of the things I I'm desperately sad about when it comes to leadership in this country and across the world actually is leaders don't listen very well uh, and I'm I'm not the expert uh, there are 10,000 lawyers better than I am but I did listen to what these people were telling me about the gaps, the problems, the obstacles they faced. And the moment you heard those stories, you wanted to do something different for them. And I, again, because I was rising through the ranks, I became the youngest uh, Muslim, the first Muslim chief prosecutor grade. I was the youngest, strangely. At, you know, at, that, at one time, I was the youngest of something uh, back in 2001. And you know, I'm working in at the heart of London. I'm walking... I walk past Scotland Yard on a daily basis. I'm half a mile away from Westminster. You know, if you can't do some good and change, bring some change in that environment, well, you're not going to bring it anywhere. And so having been tasked with or given this information and, and these ideas and, and these problems, I really put it up. I, you know, I've, I get bored very easily, Adrian. So uh, I wanted to do something more than just my casework. Uh, I wanted to be able to challenge how other people were doing their casework and also ultimately to prevent harm in the first place. And you use the word gender terrorism. It's a book. It's a word I use. A lot of people get really, whatever the word is about that, that phrase. But the way I describe it, I've described it in the book better because I give case studies. Very often, when a woman or a girl is being abused, it's not just the woman, that particular woman or girl that's being abused. More often than not, it's done as a, uh, you know, the whole community needs to be attacked. Uh, you know, when, I'm, when I was prosecuting some of the several killings that I prosecuted, I must have prosecuted about 100 murders a year, and a sizable proportion of them every year were uh, domestic, so domestic murders. Uh, Time and time again, the NGOs, the groups, the charities that work with victims and survivors would tell me that whilst a very high-profile murder trial was taking place, they would see an upsurge in victims coming to see them. And each and one of those victims would say, I have been told by my partner, my family member, whatever, that I will be the next X or Y, which whoever the victim was in that one that was high-profile being tried at the time. So people were using the abuse or homicide or whatever it may, may be of others to, in effect, control the women and girls in their own families or communities. That is why it's terrorism. Terrorism is about wider fear, not just the fear of that particular victim, but creating fear in a bigger community, i.e. the whole community of women and girls. And you know, there is no community on earth, sadly, where women and girls are safe. The chapter, I think, that moved me most, the most heartbreaking chapter in the book, also uplifting in its way because the law was changed as a result of this case, was that of Banaz Mahmood. Just talk mm. us through that case. It's an extraordinary um, case for a number of reasons. One, the British public will learn more about this case later on this year because uh, Keely Hawes has made a film about it, which will be shown on national television um, in, in the autumn. Um, but the case itself, uh, you have a young girl who's been forced into marriage at the age of 16 from a very strict um, Kurdish community in South London. You find that, She finds that she's been, 
she can't, you know, she can't live in that relationship because she's been battered, bruised, in fact, um, allegedly raped by her then husband. She finally manages to escape and goes back home. Her family, particularly her father and her uncle, are not at all happy at the fact that their daughter has come back to disgrace them and shame them at the age of 19. Uh, and for the first time in her life, Bernard falls in love with somebody. And that person she kisses out, or seen kissing outside of a underground new, uh, station in South London by some busybody from the community. That busybody then goes off uh, to her father and uncle's house and says, how dare your daughter kiss someone in public? Now, if somebody had said that about my daughter or perhaps most daughters, I'm sure the reasonable reaction would be to kick that guy out of the house. But no, what happened was father and uncle decided with a group of other men that evening that Bernard's must die. And yes, she did. They abducted her or somebody abducted her on their behalf. Uh, she was raped by one of her killers. She was strangled. And strange as it may sound, despite the fact that she was murdered in South London, she ended up buried in a suitcase in Birmingham. And the that would have gone un, unnoticed because um, the family weren't going to report her missing. Uh, it was her boyfriend uh, at the time who did. And the police phenomenal officer called Caroline Good uh, from the Met uh, would not let go of that case. And she and her team were determined to deliver justice. It took them a while to find her body. And when they did do that, uh, it was then building a case. And it wasn't enough just to prosecute the father and the uncle uh, or the man um, who was first arrested, because we knew there were potentially six or seven men involved in the decision-making. And the other issue with that, Adrian, is that all of this could have been avoided because on at least two occasions, um, one occasion which is uh, will be, which is well known, uh, she was at the police station giving a statement as to what was going to happen to her. And she hands over a list of the names of the men that she says would kill her. And the officer says, well, we'll get back to you. Well, never did, obviously. And then on another occasion, she manages to escape from the house, her house, whilst her father walks in with a marigold gloves on and tries to feed her brandy and alcohol, uh, which she'd never drunk. Uh, clearly, clearly, that was going to be the uh, you know pre precursor to murder. She runs away, runs runs out of the house, smashes a window, approaches a woman police officer who hearing this woman who's now smelling of alcohol and bleeding threatens to arrest Bernard's for drunken disorderly behavior. Now that probably wouldn't happen to somebody not from that particular community. But anyway, Bernard's could have been saved. Uh, as it happens, the justice system did its job. Uh, even more so, we managed for the first time in our history to get two people extradited back to this country from Iraq who had fled there after the investigation had started. And as it now stands, we have five, maybe six men, I think it is, in custody for long sentences, including life, for the murder of a 19-year-old girl for kissing her boyfriend outside of a tube station. And then, to, as a postscript, a decade after all of this, so just a few years ago now, that boyfriend took his own life. He was another victim of that family. Uh, he could never live with the fact that he'd lost the love of his life. And you know, it's tragic. As I say, it's more than tragic because it could all have been avoided if people had done their job properly. But it was a precipitator for significant change. We did change the law. We changed guidance for every agency. I spent the most of part of 2008 and nine traveling the country to organization after organization, GPs, doctors, health professionals, midwives, coroners, everybody to try and social workers to explain to them that this is something they could have all 
avoided if they'd done their job properly, if they trained themselves to look for the signs. And the good news is that we people did respond, but it's a terrible shame that people like Bernard had to die to do that. Indeed, and that's, as I say, it's a heartbreaking chapter, not least because the police did have the opportunity early on to save Benaz's life. You've given great credit to the police officer who eventually investigated and brought her killers and their accomplices to justice, but there was a police failure there in the first instance. Another little heartbreaking twist to the story as well is that there was a a memorial laid to Benaz mm. in in remembrance of the sacrifice that she had effectively made on behalf of other women and it was well attended by people like yourself by people involved in the protection of women who were forced to flee domestic abuse the one group who weren't represented at this memorial to Benaz were her family yeah. and members of her community the sense that even then the shame that they felt by her behaviour outweighed the terrible crime that had been committed against her. The, the thing about honour-based violence generally, and honour killings generally, um, so-called honour killings, is that what the family want to do, what the perpetrators want to do, is extinguish you from existence, as if you never existed. So they, did, they didn't put... Uh, they, they, obviously, she was buried immediately after she was found, but nobody put a gravestone on her. So our job, and that by me, it's not in my job description that I should go and bury people, but unfortunately, nobody else was going to do that. So we as a community, i.e. the police officers, uh, the Kurdish women's organizations and others, it was our responsibility to be her family. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I take great pride in that. And one of, the, one of the lovely things actually with the book is that one of the people that's read the book has contacted me and said that immediately after lockdown, this person lives in Somerset, immediately after this lockdown, he's going to go and lay some flowers on Benaz's grave. So clearly the story has touched more than more people than I imagined. But as I say, there are sadly hundreds of Benazes uh, that we've had to deal with, that I've had to deal with, uh, but it could all all have been avoided if people did their job better. And this attitude towards women, I mean, as you say, there is probably no society in the world where women, to some extent, are not treated unequally, where they're not subjected to abuse, sadly. But there are, it has to be said, I would suggest, certain migrant communities where the position of women is seen as particularly low and I mean you recalled an incident in your own life when you'd had a daughter and you relayed that to your family members mm. what did they tell you um they they were they said bad luck in effect basically better luck next time you know the fact is unfortunately that culturally and it's not just true of South Asians but across the world women boys are seen as a blessing girls are seen as a burden and the moment I had a daughter and she was my firstborn, the view of some, sadly, was that she's going to be a burden. You're going to have to think about marrying her off. You're going to have to think about uh, how you're going to be able to control her, etc. You know, she's going to shame you in some way, shape or form. All of that is unsaid, but all of that is, is the, what the culture d- drives some people to do uh, or some people to think. Uh, I never thought that way. You know, my daughter is uh, my shining light. You know, she's my eldest. She's just graduated in law from Bristol University. I never, ever thought that um, she was somehow less a person. But there are other, you know, I come across, I'd be invited 
um, Adrian, to to birthday celebrations. And I'd turn up this birthday celebration for somebody's firstborn. Uh, I thought it was their firstborn. It was uh, their first year birthday, uh, anniversary, in effect, the first birthday. I turn up and then I see a girl in the corner who's two or three and says, how come you didn't invite me to her first birthday party? And they say, oh, we didn't have one for her. She's a girl. I thought, what? You know, this is um, this is what we're up against, a perception that somehow men men are more important than women. But, you know, I don't believe that, I never have. But it drives some of the criminality that I've had to deal with. That somehow, I remember one father saying to me, look, my son has been convicted of dealing in crack cocaine, sent to jail for six years. And my daughter, she wants to marry someone of her own choice. What shame she's, she is bringing to my family. I looked at him in despair. You know, the... the doesn't matter what his boys do. They don't shame him in the way that he thinks his girls do, simply because of the choices they make. Absolutely incredible. And, and in challenging those attitudes from within your own community, I know that the example set by your own mother as you were growing up was a key part of your understanding of, of what it is to be a man, what it is to be a Muslim, uh, and how women should be treated. Absolutely. She never saw, she saw her role in the same way that my father saw, saw his role as part of the community, networking. She, made, she wanted to make sure that the women of the community, the, of the immigrant community, were given support. And I'd be, she'd be traipsing around the streets of inner city of Birmingham with pushchair, another pushchair, another pushchair, a baby on her back, turning up, giving people the benefits of her advice, making sure that they, they were safe and secure, and making sure particularly the women or the, their daughters were sec- safe and secure. That clearly, despite me not being, being being so small, that clearly had a major impact on me. She believed it in her DNA, and I believe it in mine. Really good to speak to you, Nazir. In the next episode of Adrian Goldberg's talk show, we're going to talk about the Rochdale case that you were involved in and also how you ended up on the Al-Qaeda hit list so i do hope you can subscribe and stay tuned for that if you do want to get in touch with me in the meantime you can email goldbergradio at gmail.com you can join me on twitter at goldberg radio i hope you read nazir afsal's book as well the prosecutor it is a fantastic book a really good read really insightful about modern britain and about the law as i say we'll be back with more from nazir next time for now though Thank you very much indeed for listening. Cheers.